To understand the events on this dark night of defeat and victories, we must keep in mind the week that has unfolded leading up to this hour. Each week, we kind of go back and we make sure we're on track and we have the context of what is happening here in the life of Jesus. As we go through the Gospels, it, it really kind of squeezes together. We go through the first several months, maybe the first year, then, then a few weeks at a time, and now in this last portion, we're spending several weeks on just a 24-hour period of Jesus' life, the last hours of his life. And in fact, uh, the last few hours gets, get a lot of, of ink in Mark's gospel because of the intensity and what has taken place there. Remember Monday, Jesus entered Jerusalem in victory. He's riding a donkey colt. He's immersed in the praise of thousands, men, women, and children. They line the streets, spreading out their robes, their jackets, their shawls in the midst of the roadway, and they're waving palm branches in exultation and praise. At the end of that day, Jesus makes a brief stop at the temple on the way out of town for a night's stay in nearby Bethany. Tuesday, he returns to the temple. After seeing the previous day, the brazen profiteering of the high priest and the crushing impact it had on the common people, Jesus attacks the bazaar of the priest. Single-handedly, overturning vendor tables and money changer booths and driving out the peddlers and their animals. Briefly, for a short period of time, the temple becomes the house of prayer instead of the den of thieves. Wednesday, He is back at the temple and he is preaching and teaching and he's confronting the hypocrisy of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Thursday, Thursday evening, Jesus and his disciples gather to celebrate the annual Passover. And that same evening is the night that Jesus presents the first Lord's Supper. And he announces at that time the new covenant of his blood. The joy of the evening ends with Jesus' startling and sober announcement that one of his very own disciples, one of the twelve, will himself treacherously betray him into the hands of the Jewish authorities. Later that night, after Passover, Jesus took his men, minus Judas, and walked out of the city, up to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, And there he immersed himself in intense prayer and communion with his Father. With great agony, it says, he wrestled and grieved to the point of death. And as he did so, his companion disciples spent the time fast asleep. Shortly after finding his watchman asleep for the third time, there bursts into the quiet garden a mob of Roman soldiers, temple guards, and officials from the temple. They're led by torchlight and armed with swords and clubs. And there were perhaps 500 or more men in that group. And yet with a commanding presence, Jesus confronts these assailants. He secures the release of his fearful followers And he submits himself to his Father, God's will. He allows himself to be seized by these attackers. That's what's taken place. We proceed in the account of this night, beginning the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 12. Verse 12 reads, Then the detachment of troops and captain and the officers of the Jews 
arrested Jesus and bound him. We have the agenda of two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. We begin with the influential Annas in John 18. Verse 13 says, Then they led him away. Now let's stop for a minute and consider with me, please, who is this Jesus who has been chained and is now being led away? Who is he? John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, Jesus. Then the Word was with God. Then the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Who is this they've chained and are leading away? It is God. It is Jesus, the creator of all things. It is Jesus who possesses life itself. And they've chained Him, and they're dragging Him away. Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Again, who is this that they bound in chains and are leading away? It is Jesus, the creator of all things throughout the universe, in heaven and on earth, including things that you can see and things that are unseen. All powers imaginable. He existed, it says, before anything ever was. And he sustains the existence of all things. Nothing can continue to live unless he wills and sustains it. These men that are escorting him brutally out of the garden have no idea that their heart continues to beat because Jesus wills it to. They continue to breathe because he sustains them. And yet they've changed him. They take him out. Not only is this so of Jesus in creating the world out of nothing several thousand years ago, but just a few minutes earlier in that garden... When Jesus said to the arresting mob, I am he, the complete battalion drew back and fell flat to the ground. So, when you read of this scene of Jesus being bound and led away, never forget, never forget that this is completely at the will of the one who is chained and being taken. If anyone is to be pitied and feared at this moment, it is not Jesus but the poor mortal men who are now putting God's long-suffering and His mercy to the test. It must be clear that Jesus could have snapped those chains and incinerated the assailants with a single word if He had chosen to do so. But what has He chosen? He has chosen to do His Father's will. His Father's will is that He be crucified. So, He is, as verse 13 says, led away to Annas first. For he, Annas, was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. As a brief aside here, John fills in a little background on Caiaphas. He says, Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. You see, Caiaphas caustically spoke of killing Jesus in order to preserve the Jewish peace with Rome. But God used that man unwittingly to prophesy of the vicarious death of Christ for his people. Not even knowing he was prophesying. 
And then we read the high priest, Annas, then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now our focus today is on Mark's account of the trial of Jesus that begins at this point. We will not spend much time with the initial phase of the prosecution of Jesus before Annas. It is covered only in the Gospel of John. But it is important for understanding the evil that saturated that night. The high priest, you see that role, walked a very, very difficult tightrope between the Roman authorities and the popularity of the Jews. Annas is actually not the active high priest at this moment in Jesus' life. He is father-in-law to Caiaphas, who is the current high priest. For nine years, Annas, from A.D. 6 to 15, had presided as high priest until he was deposed by Rome and another put in his place. However, this did not remove him from influence, for five of his sons eventually became high priest, and now his very own son-in-law is in control. So what takes place at Annas' home is a complete fiasco. Some scholars have called this the arraignment of Christ. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a judge. We have some here. But I want to try to make you aware of some things here. Let me read you a couple of definitions of arraignment. Arraignment according to the Cornell School of Law, is the first step in criminal proceeding where the defendant is brought in front of the court to hear the charges and enter a plea. The U.S. Department of Justice, the offices of the U.S. attorneys, give this definition. Either the same day or the day after a defendant is arrested and charged, they are brought before a magistrate judge for initial hearing on the case. At that time, the defendant learns more about his rights and the charges against him. Arrangements are made for him to have an attorney. And the judge decides that the defendant will be held in prison or released until the trial. That doesn't sound like what we're reading here, does it? Not at all. The main point I want to demonstrate is that corruption was embedded in this so-called religious trial from the very beginning to the end at every stage. And verse 53 from Mark this morning. And then they led Jesus away to the high priest. We begin now with the authoritarian Caiaphas. And the high priest is holding court. As high priest, Caiaphas ruled the temple and the Jewish religious life from A.D. 18 to 36. It's a very long tenure for him, 18 years. And just as Annas, his father-in-law before him, Caiaphas has reaped great financial benefit from the temple bazaar. And he maintained a network of power with the religious community as well as close ties to the Roman governors. He kind of had his hands in both worlds. Jesus has seriously interrupted Caiaphas' personal income. 
by destroying the temple bazaar on at least two occasions. It's happened twice and Caiaphas does not like this. Jesus also posed a huge threat to the popularity and power of Caiaphas in the eyes of the common people. And we read in 53, verse 53 also that with Caiaphas were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. The preliminary meeting that had been held earlier at Annas' house gave enough time for all the Sanhedrin to assemble in these wee hours of the morning at the home of Caiaphas for the next phase. Therefore, now sit three main components of the 71-member Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. As we looked at it last week, there are three parts here. We have the chief priests. They are the old ruling class in Jerusalem. They are Sadducees in general. And they still hold the balance of power on the Sanhedrin court. Then we have the scribes. They are mainly lawyers drawn from the middle class and they tend to be more Pharisees in their convictions. And then the elders. The elders represented the most influential families in Jerusalem and they seem to have been primarily wealthy landowners. Now as mentioned last week, these three parties were in constant conflict. But for a short period of time, they have found a tenacious unity in their hatred for one man. They hated each other until they hated Jesus. And now they hate him in unity. David prophesied hundreds of years earlier of this mutinous occasion in Psalm chapter 2 when he said, The kings of the earth take their stand, then the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. In contrast to the brash Caiaphas, there is... Hiding among the people by the fire. The hiding Peter. Mingling nearby. Verse 54 says. But Peter followed him at a distance. Right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants. And warmed himself at the fire. And Matthew says he warmed himself at the fire. To see the end. Following a distance. Why is he following at all? Was he curious? Does he have a sense of guilt with him? Are the echoes of Jesus' warning about his three denials relentless in his brain? Surely he still had an affinity for Jesus after such close relationship for three years. But now he is cut and run at the moment of the greatest testing. And why is he at a distance? Does he not want to be identified with Jesus? Not interested in dying with Jesus? Doesn't want to get the wrong reputation like Jesus is now being accused of. Edwards described it well. He said, Peter's, Peter has forsaken a discipleship of costly following for one of safe observation. Let me read that again. Peter has forsaken a discipleship of costly following for one of safe observation. You realize... Jesus was not arrested because everyone thought he was the faithful son of God. He was and he is. But to the public and the religious and the political, his status has drastically plummeted. He makes such outlandish claims, they say. And look at him now. He's dirty. He's chained. 
He's disheveled. And soon the spit of others will stain his clothes, his face, and his beard. He will be beaten, bloodied, swollen, and bruised all over his body. That's what you get when you make the kind of statements Jesus does. And that is what Peter will get if he gets much closer to Jesus. Or if he gets any braver. This is not a Peter problem. This is a Kent problem. And this is a you problem. Do you or I follow Jesus from a distance? If so, why? You don't want to be too closely identified with Jesus or his word. I want to follow, but at a distance. I don't want to be viewed as a fanatic who actually lives by the word of Christ. Or a moron because I believe his teachings on marriage, creation, the family, the church, business, and the rest of life are true. Do you fear being thought of as narrow-minded, believing Jesus is the only way? Do you think family and friends might forsake you if you speak too much or too often or too exclusively of Christ? Have you forsaken a discipleship of costly following for one of safe observation? We now leave Peter and return to Jesus. We will see how things turn out for Peter next week. But before we get deeper here, I want to make a few comments about the Jewish legal practice. There are a few preliminary details I want to show. We begin with the foundation. It is found in the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. The books of Moses, sometimes called. And we will look specifically in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verse 18. And this was kind of the foundation, the base from which Jewish law began to be developed. It reads, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise, then twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. One commentator wrote, Throughout Israel's history, a concerted effort was made to uphold that divine imperative. By the time of Jesus' ministry in the first century, the Jewish people have developed a sophisticated system of jurisprudence based on the principles outlined in the Mosaic Law. And here are a few features of the justice system. First of all, the great Sanhedrin. It's located in Jerusalem. It meets daily in the temple. Specifically, in Jerusalem only, meets daily and in the temple. There are Sanhedrins on a lesser level that are dispersed throughout the area of Judah. But the great Sanhedrin is only in Jerusalem. And they meet daily except for Sabbaths and other religious celebrations. 71 members, including the high priest who leads the proceedings. The Sanhedrin is both legislative in that it creates law. And it is judicial in interpreting and applying the law. Another historian wrote, it has apparently become significantly corrupted, both religiously and politically, by the time of Christ. And there were some very significant safeguards for maintaining justice and mercy in this system. 
And these are very interesting. Public trial was to be held during the light of day, never at night. Secondly, the Sanhedrin was to only investigate and adjudicate cases brought to them, but never to bring charges. Sufficient opportunity for self-defense was to be given. At least two witnesses were required for any charge to even be heard. And this one is very significant. Bearing false witness, perjury. Perjury resulted in the liar receiving the penalty charged to the person he lied about. Deuteronomy 19 reads, And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. That would cut down on some of the perjury, the lies. So you see a court case and the things going on now. It's prolific. And there's no penalty, essentially. Capital cases. Those that carried the death penalty. They held additional requirements, even than what we've read so far. A full day of waiting and fasting was to be held between the verdict of guilty and the actual stoning. A full day. During that day, the Sanhedrin members were to fast and consider the weight of their decision. Thirdly, this waiting period also allowed for additional testimony to arise that might change the verdict. And fourthly, because of the fasting and waiting requirements, capital offenses were not to be tried before a feast day when fasting was not allowed. And finally, the witness in a capital case was to cast the first stone in the execution of stoning. Very heavy things here. But as we look at the record God provides in the Gospel of Mark, evaluate whether any of these safeguards were violated in this trial of Jesus. Think these things through. Verse 55, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. There is the search for a charge. Was Jesus a temple terrorist? They are looking, they are looking for a testimony. Now, from what we've read, what is the one thing, the first thing that we see that has already taken place in this dubious trial? What is one thing that's already absolutely clear? The sentence. The sentence has been given. And what is that sentence? Death. Death is a sentence and has already been declared. Does that seem odd? There has been no declared verdict of guilty. Because there has yet to be any charge of wrongdoing to be guilty of. And that is because there is no testimony of any wrongdoing. It is hard to be declared guilty when no charge has been made because there is no evidence of any wrongdoing even having taken place. Yet without a verdict, without a charge, or a witness or testimony, the sentence of death has been determined long before even the arrest took place. They were after the life of Jesus. This is a sham. Sound confusing? It is. 
The chief priests and all the council, perhaps realizing this, began to seek testimony. Now the word testimony is the word martyria. And it means legitimate evidence, a record, a report, a witness. Its root word is martus, which is where we get the English word martyr, which means a witness. So although the high priest and the Sanhedrin have already determined that they are going to kill Jesus as a penalty, they now still try to find valid testimony they can use as a reason to do so. But since there was no wrongdoing, no actual evidence exists. So they find no such evidence as we read here. However, with a ruling authority like this one, there are always other options to honest testimony. Verse 56 says, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him. Having found no testimony, they tried creating testimony. False witness. It's the word pseudom arturia, which is a false or a pseudo martyria or witness. While there was no true witness found, it says they found many false witnesses but the false witnesses' statements did not agree. They were inconsistent with one another. And you know where it says some rose up? That some who rose up turns out to be the huge massive number of two. According to Matthew. And they said, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. And within three days I will build another made without hands. This is a very poorly recalled and mangled quote that likely came from the time early in his ministry when Jesus first drove the money changers and animal dealers out of the temple. Back in John chapter 2. Please turn with me to John chapter 2. Psalm 69 speaks of the zeal that Jesus had for the house of God. And he was so zealous that at the beginning of his ministry, he does this cleansing of the temple, which he also performs the very last week of his ministry. John chapter 2, verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the table. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. As you can see, even these two very creative witnesses didn't quite get the wording right, did they? And they increased the threat of the language so it sounds like a terrorist. 
But 59 says, but not even then did their testimony agree. God would not allow this thing to come, no matter how carefully planned and put together and who all was in it, God would not let it succeed. Not even then did their testimony agree. And at this point, we have a very frustrated judge. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? Seeing that this trap is not springing as he had hoped, Caiaphas steps in and he presses home three direct questions. The first two can be summarized as, Why are you not answering? And secondly, Explain these accusations being made against you. But he kept silent. And answered nothing. Isaiah 53 verse 7 spoke of this very moment. When he said he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, and in Matthew we read, he says, I put you under oath by the living God. This is Caiaphas speaking to God. I put you under the oath of the living God. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? You see, Caiaphas, the high priest, is now baiting Jesus to blaspheme, self-incrimination. Finally, the question is brought forth by the high priest. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? Which is another way of saying, are you the Son of God? This past week in the temple, leading up to this night, Jesus boldly taught the parable of the vineyard, the owner, and the tenants. And it ends with this. He says, have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our sights. And they sought to lay hands on him then, but fearing the multitude. For they knew he had spoken the parable against them, so they left him and went away. And later, Mark chapter 12, in the temple as well, Jesus answered and said, How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself called him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. But turn to John chapter 5. This, I think, as much as any, and there's a couple of more episodes in the New Testament where Jesus is so bold and so clear about who he is. But John chapter 5, that's such a beautiful story. Let's start at the beginning. Chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stirred and stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, a certain man was there who had had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, He said to him, 
Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Can you imagine that? For 38 years he hasn't been able to walk on his own, to carry anything. Now he's up, following the command of the one who healed him, carrying his mattress, and he's chastised by these leaders. You can't do this on the Sabbath. You can't carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. A little bit of, little bit of conflict. When they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. And afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason the Jews persecuted him and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, here's the meat. Verse 17, But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Is Jesus what Caiaphas baits him to say? How does he respond? Look at verse 62. Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In response to the high priest's demand, Jesus boldly declares, I am. It is a Greek phrase, ego aimi, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. It was given to God to himself for Moses' recognition in Exodus 3, verse 14. This statement of Jesus is the absolute pinnacle of the entire trial. Remember back in the Garden of Gethsemane and the band of 500 soldiers, guards, and officials show up with swords and clubs? What does Jesus do? Does he look for a back door to escape? Does he step back in confusion? Does he try to hide his identity? John 18, 4 says, He came forward right to them. There was no step backward. There was no fear or confusion. That was a crucial moment of contest. And Jesus fearlessly stepped right into the mouth of the lion. Here, at this moment, is an even greater moment of confidence and intention. It is really as if Jesus has been silently waiting for the last few hours through the trial with Annas and now with Caiaphas, silently waiting to finally get to the point and ask, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? I am, says Jesus. And not only am I the Messiah, 
His response goes further. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You see, Jesus in this statement unleashes a torrent of truth, far more unsettling than the high priest ever imagined. Jesus' confession to the high priest gloriously declares the prophecy of David. In Psalm 119, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And of Daniel, in Daniel 7, 13, I was watching in the night vision, then behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient days, and they brought him near before him. That is who Jesus is claiming to be to this Caiaphas, this sham of a high priest. All this to say, as one man points out, he was letting them know this would not be the last time they would meet in the context of a trial. He would be back with all of the authority of heaven and he would judge them. Did the high priest get that message? Verse 63 says, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? There's a total collapse at this point. We have merely here a show and shambles. One could say that Caiaphas honestly was suddenly overcome with abhorrence when he realized Jesus was blaspheming. However, the scriptures show otherwise. We have already established that Caiaphas knew Jesus had often claimed to be the Son of God as well as the Messiah. And they have planned and calculated his death for a couple of years now. This is no overwhelming surprise. It is a hypocritical show of disdain toward Jesus. And look what he says. What need have we of further witnesses? So far in reading, how many legitimate witnesses have they gathered? Zero. They have none. Either Caiaphas is saying Jesus' self-incrimination eliminated any need for even one witness, let alone the mandatory two, or he has already forgotten what a shambles this proceeding has turned into. The verdict is given. Listen carefully. In a typical Sanhedrin court case, each member cast his vote one at a time, beginning with the youngest man of the council to the oldest. This was for the purpose that the youngest would not be influenced by the more experienced and influential leaders of the Sanhedrin. One at a time, youngest to the oldest. And as that happened, the scribe would carefully record each vote. How does this compare with what we see? What happens next? Caiaphas steps up. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? The high priest gives the verdict and then high pressures his lesser court colleagues to follow suit unanimously. And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists. And to say to him, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now this, this could strike us as a sudden collapse of justice and an ensuing flood of chaos. But the fact is that Jesus had told his men just a few weeks earlier, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death 
and deliver him to the Gentiles and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. The prophet Isaiah also prophesied this moment several centuries before. He wrote, The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. And I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. See this man. There's never been a hero like him. He is the supreme savior. He possesses absolute sovereign control of every element of what is taking place and yet displays the lowliest of humble submission to his father. He confronts and lays the arresting mob flat on their backs and then he allows them to seize him, bind him, and arrest him. He remains silent throughout the interrogation of Annas and then with Caiaphas as well until that precise moment. And it drives Caiaphas to finally ask Jesus if he is the Son of God. And Jesus then boldly declares, I am. And I am also the Son of Man who will return in judgment on the clouds of heaven. At every turn in his final hours of life, leading up to the cross, Jesus displays his sovereign control over all and then submits himself to the suffering and humiliation that will give life to all who follow him. Consider, many deny that Jesus is the Son of God that rules the universe and will someday judge each person for their sin. If you haven't heard somebody say that, come with us on Saturday night or Monday at the campus or downtown every, every week. Many deny that Jesus is the Son of God and that he rules the universe and will someday judge each person for their sin. Caiaphas was even told by Jesus himself that that was who he was and what he would do. But not for a moment did Caiaphas look into the possibility that Jesus was who he said he was. Caiaphas was too obsessed with himself. He could not bear the idea of being accountable to this common, yet absolutely uncommon man now standing before him in chains. He had the perfect opportunity to find out more, but he would not. If you do not believe Jesus to be the Son of God, the Savior of all who trust Him, the judge of all the earth. Please do not throw away your opportunity and die in self-confident foolishness. Don't be a fool. Don't throw away the opportunity. You're hearing the word of God this morning. It's not me. If I'm confusing, I apologize, but the word of God is absolutely clear. Go here. If you do not see him for who he claims to be, go here and search it out. He promises that whoever seeks him will find him. Do not hold back. Do not die a fool. Investigate for yourself who he is through his word. As Peter the apostle said, no one else has the words of life. Secondly, if you profess to know Jesus, are you following him at a distance, unwilling to risk being too close? 
Have you considered dying for Jesus right now? Romans 6 says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Don't be afraid to die, physically or to yourself. Do not forsake a discipleship of costly following for one of safe observation. If there was ever a culture of safe observers in the Christian church, it is now. We've got to come out of that. We've got to be willing to experience costly discipleship. Costly discipleship has immense reward. But safe observation leaves you stale. And thirdly, obey his command to follow his example as we see before Caiaphas. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 21, I'll close with this. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him, the Father, who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that having died to sins, might, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. What a Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you. I thank you for this example that you set before us in front of Annas and in front of Caiaphas and in front of the, the multitude of soldiers and troops, guards, officials, the haughty hypocrites. You were, you were your man. You were the son of God. You were undaunted, un, unmoved. Lord, I want to be like that. I know many men and women here, brothers and sisters, want to be like that. Lord, make us to have that kind of courage, that kind of faith, that kind of filling of your Holy Spirit that we would walk as you walked. Lord, thank you for the times that we're in. Bring it on, Father, so that we can display you to this world. And Father, I pray, I pray for men and women here who have refused to surrender to Christ, to bend the knee and repent and follow. Lord, move hearts. It is not difficult for you, we know. We just beg for your mercy for them. And Father, I pray that you would use us this week, that we would be a light in this community, that we would be your ambassadors. And Father, you would would do great and marvelous things for your glory through us, even if it means our death, Lord. But that we would be tools for your use until you take us home. For you are worthy forever. In your name we pray, amen.